Hello and welcome back to Trying the Trojan War. Today we are talking about the Aeneid. And I really can't start our conversation without a good bit of preface here. Uh, once upon a time when Professor Kozlowski was but a young undergraduate himself and was reading Homer and Virgil for like the first time, or at least, you know, reading them seriously for the first time, uh, I had a conversation with my roommate at that time. Both of us uh, at that point had taken uh, a class specifically on like the Greek and Roman myths, um, although our campus didn't have a proper classics department, it was kind of run through the English department as a preparation to understanding Greek and Roman allusions in uh, British literature down the road. Um, it was a great class, like everybody I knew took it, um, we all loved it, um, and it is very much the basis for both my understanding of the mythology class and uh, this class on Troy and the Trojan War, much as I have added a great deal to what Professor Olson taught me once upon a time. Uh, but anyway, the two of us were talking, and Isaac, uh, who was my roommate and was especially inclined to making controversial assertions, just to like, see how they floated, um, he specifically came to me and said, I think the Aeneid is better than the Iliad or the Odyssey. Um... And I asked him why he thought this, because I pretty strongly believe the opposite. Um, still do. We'll get to that. Um, and he said that I think that it's better because it has an obvious political message here. Um, it supports the regime of the ancient Romans. It strengthens their self-identity. Um, it respects the culture and sort of like makes the Romans more proud of themselves. Um, now I should specify... Again, my roommate here was inclined to making controversial observations. He was an edgelord before edgelords were a thing in some respect. Um, but he was also kind of a playful edgelord. He knew very well where the lines were. He was not an asshole about it. Um, he would walk across campus in combat boots and a trench coat, and he would go to death metal concerts before they were entirely overrun with crazy fascists. And in fact, I suspect he was more on the Antifa side of that particular scene. Um, but this is an idea that I want to confront here. Um, on the one hand, I can see his point. Um, the Aeneid is a masterpiece. Like, it is doing what it intends to do, and it's doing it very well. As a Roman epic, it very much succeeds. Um, it does sing the praises of the Roman Empire, it does have some moments of real pathos, some real literary developments, like, there's a lot of really good stuff in the Aeneid. But it was weird for my friend to say that then, and it is perhaps even weirder now. It was one thing to say that, like, the Aeneid was the superior work because there's nothing wrong with propaganda or anything resembling sort of national, uh, national praise, nationalism, uh, so to speak. Back in 2006, I want to say this was, like, we were coming off of September 11th. Our country was very much reeling still from, you know, our sort of terrorist attack and attack on our personal identity, our national identity, um, it was okay to some degree to be more nationally minded, to be more patriotic back in 2006. 
In 2022, though, with the looming specter of fascism once again hanging over our heads and the heads of many other nations in this world, with the threat of populist, uh, populist patriotism sort of overtaking good sense in many cases, and even just basic reality, I find that I see the Aeneid differently than I did back then. Back then, I was willing to entertain my roommate's perspective, even if I pretty vehemently disagreed with it. Um, I thought Homer was the superior writer. I thought that he had built superior characters. I thought that his reading of human behavior in the person of an imperfect Achilles, an imperfect Odysseus, an imperfect Agamemnon, um, was itself more compelling to me than this idea of an Aeneas who can do nothing wrong and who is just, like, perpetually heroic all the time. Um, I thought, to some degree, that the Greek attitude was more profound than the Roman in that sense. Um, and while I could see, again, the perspective, like, why should we dwell on all these human imperfections? Why should we sort of emphasize that our heroes are flawed or screwed up or guilty of, of various crimes against the gods? Um, why should we, you know, accept this when we could be presented with the alternative? Well, the alternative is honestly kind of scary these days. Um, we live in a world where there are a lot of people clamoring the way that my roommate, you know, engaged me in a conversation once upon a time, no harm, no foul. Lots of people are clamoring for their superheroes and their heroes to be perfect, to be without fault. And these are the same people who are looking towards a sort of fascist government as the future. Like, it's obviously way more complicated than that and way more politically motivated than that, and there's a lot of different moving parts here to trying to parse everything that is going on. But again, the fact of the matter is, I can't read this book objectively. Um, like, that story, that question, that issue lingers in my mind to this day, and the fact of the matter is, that's okay. Um, when you are doing art criticism, when you are reading anything, classic or otherwise, there's two sort of approaches that you need to take into consideration as you go about that. Um, I've I, This is like my specialty, so once again I'm going on a long tangent on something that I really am passionate about in a way of avoiding like some of the stuff that I am less excited to talk about. Um, but when you are reading anything, literature, mass media, you know, watching a movie, playing a video game, whatever you want to do, like, um, you have to engage with it. Like, you will engage with it. There is no way not to engage with it on two levels. Um, the intrinsic and the extrinsic, as I like to refer to it. The, an intrinsic reading of the text is trying to understand what the author is getting across and appreciating the text on the merits that the text itself is trying to give to you. So, for example, when we read Homer, and I talk about how, you know, Homer is emphasizing the flaws of Achilles' character, or, you know, I'm emphasizing that, like, the scene between Hector and Andromache with Astyanax is this, like, profound, meaningful, psychological glimpse of these characters' lives, and it is personal, and it is heartfelt, and it is a keen psychological insight onto all of these characters and the way that human beings interact with each other. That's intrinsic judgment. I am looking at Homer and I am saying, what does Homer value? Is Homer communicating that successfully? Do I feel what Homer is trying to get me to feel? 
And if the answer is yes, then Homer is being successful. He is a great artist. He is accomplishing the goal that he is setting for himself to do. But that's not the end of literary criticism. That's not the sum total of everything that you have to do when you read a book. Yes, appreciating what the author wants to do and whether or not that author is accomplishing that is an important component of the process, and if you're not doing that, you are selling the author short. But if you stop there, if you take whatever this work is at its face value, purely on its own merits, without considering the greater context, then you are cutting yourself short. See, frequently in Homer, I would stop my sort of intrinsic examination that this is what Homer is trying to accomplish, this is probably what Homer is trying to do, this is what Homer values, this is how he communicates it, this is why it's effective. I would stop pretty frequently and say things like, but it's still really misogynist, or it's still really racist in some cases, or Homer doesn't appreciate the situation beyond his own scope. You know, Homer assumes a lot about his world and doesn't bother to question it. He assumes that women in concubine roles is okay, or at the very least, it's a part of life, why question it? And we are right to question that. We are right to ask ourselves, is Homer in fact legitimizing a practice of enslaving and effectively raping women be just because he doesn't see life as being able to work any other way. When we ask ourselves, are we going to teach Homer in the classroom, whether it's to, you know, middle schoolers or high schoolers or college students or beyond, we're going to have to make those decisions. We're going to have to say to ourselves, is this text doing more harm than good? Is Homer's misogynistic perspective, is his, you know, backward, like, you know, specifically Greek attitude, in fact, problematic and because it is out of sync with a 21st century attitude towards these same issues. We can definitely praise Homer for, you know, talking about Hector and Andromache and his psychological insights there, but we are also right to question Homer when it comes to, you know, women being routinely sidelined or treated as possessions, whether or not Homer is in fact sort of praising militarism, even as he seems to be writing a poem that is effectively anti-war. Like, that's what I call extrinsic judgment looking beyond what the artist has in mind to some of the things that the artist is saying either inadvertently or unaware of the context that we are now reading him in. Um, all of these things need to be considered. You know, take that example of, is Homer in fact praising a military lifestyle? That's a big one. And that was a big one even in Homer's own day and in the Greek world afterwards. You know, Plato in the Ion, as well as in the Republic, is very willing to criticize Homer for sort of, on the one hand, saying, war is bad, look at all of the death, look at all of the suffering, look at Hector, the destruction of Troy, these are all horrible tragedies, while at the same time glorying in the gore and the violence when somebody throws a spear through another person's eye. Like, that's kind of out of sync. And you can examine that from the intrinsic perspective. You can question Homer and say, okay, are you in fact, you know, like, betraying your own principles here? But on an even greater level, we should be asking the question, is Homer glorifying violence? 
Is Homer saying it's okay for the world to be that way? Is Homer's lack of perspective, in fact, inhibiting his ability to write a compelling story and something that will transcend all time? That's extrinsic judgment. And you need to do this. Like, there is a whole contingent of people on the internet who seem absolutely allergic to extrinsic judgment. They don't want politics in their video games, and they don't want Marvel movies to have, you know, considerations for demographic representation. And that's bullshit. Like, that is just total 100% nonsense. Everything occurs in context. Every work of art is produced in context. It is aware of its political situation, and it is responding to its political situation. And if it claims not to be doing that, it is absolutely telling you a lie. Everything is political, including the stance, I am not political. Um, and on the one hand, that can just like degenerate into just name-calling and politicizing and so on and so forth, and there have to be limits set there as well, although they, again, will be determined contextually. But to say, this is not political, or I am going to read this without injecting politics into my reading, is nonsense. It can't be done. Um, Everything is political. Homer is political today, just as Homer was political in the 8th century BCE, just as Homer was political in the 4th century BCE. There's no way around it, and extrinsic judgment is a part of being a human being and engaging with art, literature, media, and even people talking to each other in a conversation at a grocery store. All of it has this extrinsic quality to it. All of it has, is to somewhat to some degree, circumscribed or determined by its political context, by the other forces at work around it. Um, Homer, whether intentionally or unintentionally, is sort of showing us a vision of the world that he adopts and that he does not question and that he, in some respect, sanctions. And there are a lot of examples of how this extrinsic judgment can be done. I'm using the ones from this class because I know we are familiar with all of them, but, you know, by all means, ask me about more and you will get more. The fact of the matter is, the Aeneid, no matter how well it works on an intrinsic perspective, really troubles me on the extrinsic reading. Um, I can appreciate the beauty of a lot of what the Aeneid is doing, but I have a great deal of trouble with it from that extrinsic perspective, with the attitude, both politically, metaphysically, even in its goals. Like, much as Virgil accomplishes what he sets out to do, I have a lot of questions about what he's setting out to do. And with that in mind, I gotta tell you, I don't like the Aeneid. I just don't. It happens. Like, sometimes incredibly great works of literature run, rub you the wrong way. Sometimes you think that they're overrated. Like, everybody's got a couple of books. You know, every professor who you have for any of your humanities classes probably has a couple of great works of literature that they really wish they hadn't have had to read or don't have to teach or whatever the case may be. Now, on the one hand, I am glad to teach the Aeneid. In fact, I've been looking for an excuse to teach the Aeneid. Um, for three or four years now in my mythology class, I've kind of like come up against the Aeneid a couple of times, and I like to sort of inject a little bit of Aeneid 2 into our Iliad discussion, or talk about Aeneid 6 compared to, you know, what Odysseus is doing in Odyssey 11. 
You know, it's a really good reference point, and it helps me to illuminate the Roman perspective to my students. I want to teach it. I'm glad to teach it now. I kind of wish I could teach more of it. But at the same time, I don't like it. And I teach it because I don't like it. Because I think that it's a really important sort of lesson to get across to my students that great works are sometimes a little reprehensible. Um, and there's a whole discussion here about like what should and should be taught, what you know is canonical that shouldn't be. Um, you know the stuff that we as professors and writers and readers consider important changes on a regular basis. Again, in the 16th or 17th centuries, everybody thought the Aeneid was the best work of literature ever produced, largely because the Romans had a really great PR campaign surrounding it, and the Renaissance was a little too naive to distinguish the difference between that PR campaign and what was actually the case, I suspect. Um, but at the same time, you know, that could very well be determined by my own perspective as well. The fact that I come from a tradition where I don't believe in, you know, very obvious absolutes, I don't believe that, like, national pride and, you know, patriotism or jingoism is necessarily a virtue, that very well might be the reason why I can't appreciate the elements of the Indian compared to the people of the Renaissance who didn't have such considerations. I imagine that if a hundred years from now we are living in a fascist American state, the Aeneid will be celebrated more than the Iliad or the Odyssey would be with its many considerations and caveats. Um, but we're not living in that day. And honestly, I don't want us to live to see that day either. I would have a lot of problems with them too, I suspect. Um, so this is kind of the issue that we're coming at here. As your professor, I want to teach this, and I'm as a professor generally, I want to present all of these works in the best light they can possibly be presented in. I want you to like the Iliad. I want you to like the Odyssey, because I like those things. I want you to like the Trojan women, tough as it might be to do that. And to some degree, I want you to appreciate the Aeneid, even if I don't personally like it, and I honestly kind of hope that you don't either. Like, I do not want you to come away from the Aeneid and be like, Yeah, the Roman Empire rocks! We should totally overthrow the government, institute an emperor, and call it a day. Like, if, you're, if the takeaway from the Aeneid is that, I have not done my job correctly, and I am so sorry to you and to America. Um, but here we are. I want to teach you the Aeneid and I want to talk about the Aeneid, and I want to present it in its best light, but at the same time, I want you to be warned against its dangers. So I am going to try very, very hard to say nice things about this book whenever possible. Um, I will dig pretty deeply to find the things that I like about this text. But I am going to spend a lot of time today dwelling on its faults. Um, not because I think that it's a bad book, again, I do think that this is a masterpiece in its own right, but I don't think it stands up to comparison with Homer at all, and I do think that it is troublesome, problematic, as the kids are saying, or as the kids are not saying anymore, from what I understand. This is a difficult work. It is complicated. Um, and that's okay. 
Like, there are many complicated works out there. Like, ask somebody sometime about, you know, what they think of Rabelais' Gargantua, and you will get a pretty complicated perspective if they are, in fact, a scholar of it. Um, ask somebody what they feel about Mark Twain's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn nowadays, and you will get an absolute landslide of discussion. Um, ask what, you know, a person who used to teach Heart of Darkness thinks about Conrad's Heart of Darkness these days, and you will get an involved and complicated discussion. That's just the way it goes. Literature it changes according to the context in which it is read. Much as it pains me to say it, much as I wish it were otherwise, literature is not static. It changes according to the environment around it. New meanings can be found by people who are reading it from a different perspective, in a different time, in a different way. You know, even Shakespeare. Like, you study Shakespeare for a living, and you will find that over time, various Shakespeare plays have gotten more or less press, depending on the culture that was sort of discussing and viewing various plays. Um, Once Upon a Time, Taming of the Shrew was one of the most popular plays to ever present. These days, it is very much out of fashion, unless you are really, really changing the spirit of the text, because it is kind of hardcore misogynistic. Once Upon a Time, The Merchant of Venice was taught all over the place. Um... Now it's on a bit of a slump. Nobody likes The Merchant of Venice because it rings a little bit too anti-Semitic to most ears, although some others are sort of taking it as a clarion call and celebration of the Jewish faith. It's complicated. Again, all of these books change. All of these works sort of take on different significance. It's too easy to either just dismiss them out of hand, say, ah, this is trash and it has no value for me because it is racist or misogynist or xenophobic or, you know, any number of crimes that our culture is particularly inclined to condemn. Um, it is too easy to do that. Um, some works are really well written and have really terrible messages. Other works are extremely badly written and have really good messages. Um, it's crazy complicated. Um, the best that we can do, the reason why I am excited to teach the Aeneid and why I do insist on having it in the curriculum is because it is, in fact, important. It is a really huge moment in the development of the Homeric tradition. The Aeneid is clearly reacting to Homer, transforming our understanding of Homer, and adopting Homeric technique for a new age. It is clearly indebted to Homer, and it marks this very important moment in Roman history where the Romans were very much trying to distance themselves from Homer while still very much enthralled to their admiration of him. This is a very political work, in short. And the Trojan War will remain political for a thousand years and more, even after the Roman Empire falls. That's what I'm trying to get across here. This is an important work, and you should absolutely study it, or at least be exposed to it, but there are problems, and you've got to sort of anticipate and navigate around those problems and recognize those problems as we confront them. So with that in mind, we're looking at three major sections of Virgil's Aeneid here. And when I say three major sections, these are three of the most important chapters in the Aeneid, like, period, across the board, everybody agrees. You know, the back half of the Aeneid, much as we are not even touching it, like, 7 to 12 is basically you know, Virgil's recapitulation of everything that's going on in the Iliad, where books 1 to 6 are very much a recapitulation of everything going on in the Odyssey, 
Virgil just really hit the jackpot with these three scenes that we're going to study here. And you'll notice that Lombardo seems to be on board with this interpretation as well. Like, he cuts entirely book three and book five. He truncates books seven through twelve pretty seriously. Like, I don't think any of them are the full length um, of the original text. Like, he literally, like, cuts out the first half of, you know, 11 and 12 and, like, the middle half of 10. It's a pretty hefty uh, slash, slash job here. But two, four, and six we have in their entirety. Um, and for good reason. These are the most important, most frequently quoted parts of the Aeneid, most frequently recognized as significant parts of the Aeneid. Um, but before we can even get to the stuff that we read about, I do want to give you a little bit of preface. Um, so we obviously jump in in book two with stuff already happening. Um, Aeneas is apparently, you know, hanging out with Dido, uh, giving his description of everything that has already transpired, everything that has already happened to him, and we have no idea why this is the case. Like, we're in a situation that is very reminiscent of the Odyssey 9, where, like, Odysseus is sitting with the Phaeacians, and they're like, please, stranger, tell us who you are, and tell us about your travels. And Odysseus launches into his four-book narration of everything that has gone before. Basically, we are in the same situation. Um, Aeneas has, not under his own steam, but like due to the gods' direction, landed on this island, or rather the mainland of Africa, i.e. Carthage, where Dido is sort of queen and running the show, and he, he reveals himself to her and she asks, alright, what's your deal? And we get a two-book-long discussion of what his deal is. Book two and three are basically the combined sum of Aeneas's adventures up until now. Like Odysseus, he's been on the move for a long time. It's been seven years, I want to say, by the time that we hit uh, Aeneas or Aeneid six. Um, so we do, in fact, have a long journey. He's not so awesome that he can like do everything that Odysseus did in a single year, but it is clear that it does take him less time to do everything that Odysseus does, and also more because you know Aeneas then proceeds to like found. Rome, so that's pretty awesome. Um, the other thing that I definitely want to emphasize is the thing that we always emphasize when we embark upon one of these epic poems. What is the theme? And Virgil is at least aware enough of Homeric tradition to launch his book with a theme. Namely, if you do turn to page one, you will notice that the first paragraph is Arms, I sing, and a man, the first to come from the shores of Troy, exiled by fate to Italy and the Lavinian coast, a man battered on land and sea by the powers above in the face of Juno's relentless wrath, a man who also suffered greatly in war until he could found his city and bring his gods into Latium, from which arose the Latin people, our Alban forefathers, and the high walls of everlasting Rome. Okay, so a few things here. When Homer writes theme into the first word of his epic poem, it tends to be something big and broad and universal. Rage. Memory. These are the concepts that Homer is playing with. For the Aeneid, for Virgil, it's arms and a man. And we already have a really good idea what we're in for in this text. This is a text that unabashedly celebrates warfare. Um, Homer always has that sort of split 
or split attitude on the subject. On the one hand, he is anti-war. He is very aware of the devastation that war causes. You know, he goes well out of his way to emphasize all the bad things that Achilles' rage and the war in Troy brings about. On the other hand, he kind of does really like scenes of violence, and he does kind of revel in the, you know, horrors of war. Because, you know, who doesn't like violence? I mean, the gladiatorial games in Rome are a thing for hundreds of years, and they work, like they keep everybody happy. Virgil doesn't have this kind of different identity. He is willing to pay lip service to the tragedies, for sure. And he is absolutely an opponent of the sort of brutality that seems to be especially recognized in the Greeks. But this is a poem effectively celebrating war and the hero who conducts it. He kind of misses the point here, I think. Like, he is obviously sort of treading in Homer's line. He is walking in Homer's footsteps. He is using a lot of Homer's techniques, and he is, like, parodying, uh, very much copying Homer's notes. But he doesn't necessarily understand why. He doesn't understand what it is that drives Homer forward. And this is pretty evident throughout the text. Like, you'll notice a lot of Aeneid nods to Homeric traditions. Like, based on our very close reading of the Iliad and the Odyssey, I hope that you picked up on a lot of those. Like, I'm sitting here, like, highlighting passages and stressing, you know, this is a clear callback to this, that, or the other thing throughout the Homeric epics. I imagine that you were doing at least some of the same like, probably less than I did because I've read this thing so many dang times at this point. But still, when he says something like, you know, three times he lunged forward to embrace Anchises, three times he was rebuffed, I'm sitting there like, okay, this is a clear reference to Odysseus doing the same thing with Anticlea. Um, or, you know, alternatively, like, he's going down into the underworld and he, you know, has this one friend, Diphobus, or rather, not Diphobus, um, who is it, Palladian? Um, who hasn't been buried properly, and he's like, oh no, I can't get across the river Styx because, you know, I need to be buried properly. And I'm like, okay, this is Euphorbus again. Like, this is very obviously Euphorbus. Um, there's clear references to Homeric elements throughout, but a lot of the time, Virgil misses the reason why those things are there. Like, one of the things that you will notice is that we don't have the Homeric repetition anymore. Which, that makes perfect sense. Virgil didn't have an oral tradition that he was working from. Like, yes, there was an oral tradition celebrating the foundation of Rome in all likelihood. And yes, it's that oral tra tradition that probably communicated to the great early Roman historians who started passing on this story from generation to generation. But it's been written down for a long time. We are not, like Homer was, at this sort of important moment in the history of language when, you know, oral tradition used to be the only way that these things could be expressed, but now, you know, writing materials and the ability to write is more common and more available, and as a consequence, like, this is the moment when Homer decides, you know, Homer being this theoretical person or group of persons, that now is the time to commit these this great oral work that has been passed down for generations to a more permanent form. This is not the context here in the Indian. You know, writing has been frequently applied and being used all the time by Roman nobles for literally centuries at this point. It's nothing new. It's just now is the time to, you know, specifically create a work of art celebrating the Romans the way that the great Greek epics 
celebrated the Greeks, or again, so the Romans thought. Remember, the Iliad actually isn't terribly friendly to the Greek side of the Trojan War, but that's another conversation for another day. Um, so Virgil has a very different goal here, and as a consequence, all those repetitions, all those epitaphs, those are gone, because we don't need them anymore. We don't have that strict metrical formula with all of these interjections and all of these sort of mnemonic devices driving those particular structural details forward. We don't need the type scenes, even though Virgil does continue to have a couple of them. You'll notice that a number of funeral preparation type scenes creep in here, and there are plenty of battle-ish type scenes later on. Um, some of those do creep in because that seems epic to Virgil. That seems important. But again, many of these details, like, you know, you're trying to embrace your father three times and can't, Virgil includes them without necessarily being aware of why they were important in Homer. He just knows that they were really cool, so we're going to throw them in. Or so it seems to me. Sometimes they work really well. Like, the rep the use of, you know, uh, Aeneas trying to embrace Anchises compared to Odysseus trying to embrace Anticlea, that works! Like, that drives home the same message that Homer was trying to drive home, namely the mortality distance between them. But notice also that the metaphysics are different here. Like, Odysseus had summoned the ghosts, the phantoms, from the underworld because he had landed on this one island, performed the sacrifice, and apparently, like, the barrier is really thin there, so, like, the ghosts can come up. Keep in mind, Aeneas is doing something different. He's actually going into the underworld. He's, like, walking in. He gets he has to go over the, the river by Charon's ferry. Like, he is, in fact, bodily present there. This isn't necessarily, you know, a judgment against the Aeneid. This It still totally works that, like, the spirits in the underworld are still phantoms. But it would make sense that they would, in fact, have more physical characteristics, that they would in fact be present there in a way that they weren't in the Odyssey, especially because you'll notice they have stuff. Like, they have spears and chariots, and they apparently like playing with these things even after death because they were interested in warfare before. So, you know, the underworld seems to be a place where they would be able to physically interact with other objects, just apparently not people from the outside world. It's a detail that kind of rings false, much as it is a clear reference, and it does emphasize that same theme of mortality here. And this is kind of a thing throughout the poem. Again, you'll see a lot of similar references throughout that kind of seem out of place, one of which hopefully we'll get the chance to talk about in considerably more detail as we go. But that said, we also need to pay attention to the innovations, the things that Virgil is changing or adding or just including that Homer never wanted to include for one reason or another. Um, so again, the three scenes that we're focusing on here are Aeneid 2, Aeneid 4, Aeneid 6. And again... A lot of these are borrowing a lot of stuff from Homer, but at the same time, this is also where Virgil's originality is at its most clear. So let's take a look first at Aeneid 2. Aeneid 2 is the story we've kind of been waiting for for a while. The story of the actual fall of Troy. 
Um, we get the scene of, you know, Aeneas and company, like, seeing the abandoned Trojan horse on the beach, and this random dude, Sinon, son of Palamedes, who is, like, lying through his teeth to get them to take the horse into the city and dismantle the city walls to, like, enable the Greeks to take them over. And then finally, the actual sack occurs. Like, Aeneas is woken up in the middle of the night by the ghost of Hector, you know, bloodied and awful looking, like, wake up, it's the city is burning, like, then Aeneas comes out and he fights some skirmishes with the Greeks, but really, they're, like, obviously outnumbered, and we all know how this story is supposed to end. Like, as much as you can see Virgil trying to make Aeneas, like, I will take out all of the Greeks all by myself, and he can totally do it, like, obviously that can't be the case. So numerous times we get these interjections where it's like, the gods put Aeneas's or fear into Aeneas's mind, or the gods took over his better judgment, and it's like, all right, come on, we get it. Like, he's awesome, and he can do everything, but he can't do this. Um, this is actually something that comes up a lot in epic poetry, especially in the Roman world and later in the medieval world as well. Some pretty contrived and sometimes wonderfully contrived reasons why certain heroes have to die tragically or, you know, horrible things happen to them. Um, it's It can get pretty pretty fun, but here it just seems a little silly to me, maybe because I'm just biased against this text. It's entirely possible. Um, but the one thing that I really do want to emphasize about Book 2 especially is the contrast between the way that Virgil presents the Greeks as opposed to the way that Homer presents the Trojans. Um, notice that Virgil emphasizes the viciousness of the Greeks throughout this passage. Um, like, this is the main thing I want to draw attention to, and probably something that you didn't need me to tell you about. It's pretty freaking obvious here. Um, notice especially the scene where Neoptolemus kills Priam. Um, Neoptolemus is also frequently called Pyrrhus here. That's his Roman name. Um, you'll notice that the gods all have Roman names here. It's Venus, not Aphrodite. It's Jupiter, not Zeus. It's Mercury, not Hermes. Um, so on and so forth. Like, many of the Greek names are preserved. It's still Pallas, Athena. It's still Apollo. Like, the Romans do not ever change Apollo's name. He is, like, the distinctly Greek god, so they call him by the distinctly Greek name. Um... But, like, we'll go back and forth on some of the heroes. Like, Odysseus is always Ulysses, but, you know, it's still Achilles. Um, Neoptolemus and Pyrrhus seem to be pretty much interchangeable here. Um, anyway, we get this scene where, like, Neoptolemus does, in fact, confront Priam. And we know how this scene ends. We've been told by Apollodorus. But we get an actual first-hand account and narration from Aeneas here. Um, right around line 582 in Book 2, I saw with my own eyes Neoptolemus lusting for slaughter, and Atreus's two sons there on the threshold. I saw Hecuba with her hundred daughters, and Priam polluting with his blood the very altars he had consecrated himself. Those fifty bedchambers, that promise of offspring, the doorposts proud with barbarian gold, all lost. The Greeks held what the fires spared. And what, you may ask, was Priam's fate? When he saw that his city had fallen, the doors of his palace shattered, and the enemy at his hearth, the old man slung his long, unused armor over his trembling shoulders, strapped on his useless sword, and, bound to die, charged the enemy. Notice the characterization of Priam here. First, Aeneas didn't see this firsthand. He just apparently knows it somehow. Don't ask questions! Um, Priam, you'll notice, though, is presented tragically here. 
like Priam, this old withered man who, you know, was probably a great fighter once upon a time, but hasn't been able to like even carry a sword for a long while. He arms himself uselessly, straps on his useless sword, his long unused armor. He knows that there is no way that he can actually stand up to this rampaging army of Greeks, um, but he is going to do his damnedest to go down with this ship, to present himself honorably at this last moment. In the middle of the palace, under heaven's naked wheel, an enormous altar lay beneath the branches of an ancient laurel whose shade embraced the household gods. In this sacred place, Hecuba and her daughters huddled like doves driven by a black storm, clutching the gods' images. But when she saw Priam himself clad in the armor of his youth, she cried out, My poor husband! What insanity has driven you to take up these weapons? Where are you rushing to? The hour is past for defense like this, even if my Hector were still here. Come to this altar, please. It will protect us all or you will die with us. Hecuba said these things, took the aged man in her arms, and placed him on the holy seat. And now Polites, one of Priam's sons, pursued by Pyrrhus, came running through the colonnades, wounded. When he reached the vast atrium, Pyrrhus was breathing down his neck, and yet he slipped away to face his parents' eyes. There he fell, Pyrrhus's spear in his back, and poured out his life in a pool of blood. Then Priam, in death's grip as he was, did not hold back his anger or spare his voice. For this heinous crime he cried, this outrage may the gods in heaven, if there is in heaven any spirit that cares for what is just and good, may the gods treat you as you deserve for making me watch my own son's murder and defiling with death a father's face. Not so was Achilles, whom you falsely claimed to be your father, in the face of Priam his foe, but honored a suppliant's rights and trust and allowed the bloodless corpse of Hector burial and sent me back to my own realm. Notice the context here. We have... Polites, Priam's son, running into the temple while, you know, Hecuba is trying to convince her husband to, like, run away with her. There's no point in standing up. The city is lost. He can't defend it. Like, it's long past time to get out of, out of Dodge. In runs Polites, already wounded. The Pyrrhus's spear in his back, and he falls before his father and mother, bleeding all over the, the floor of the temple, just trying to get one last glimpse of his, par of his parents. Again, the horror of Priam having to watch his son die is what's emphasized here, but notice, too, Priam's rebuke. You are not Achilles' son. Achilles was an honorable man. He gave me the body of Hector when I asked for it. He recognized suppliance. Now, on some level, we should note that this is nonsense. Like, Achilles had to be really well persuaded to give up Hector's body, and Achilles was kind of flaunting it before the gods for a long time before he ever sort of gave the body up. On the one hand, this is kind of emphasizing a more like, positive view of Achilles than we as readers of Homer directly might have in inclination to believe. On the other hand, Priam isn't lying. Like, in, at the end of the day, Achilles did, in fact, give up the body of Hector, did, in fact, have that much respect for Priam and for his dignity. But notice Neoptolemus's response. The old man threw his feeble spear. Its tip clanged against the bronze of Pyrrhus's shield and dangled usely from its boss. And Pyrrhus, then you can take this news to my father, the son of Peleus. Be sure to tell him about my sad behavior and how degenerate his son has become. Now die. 
remember when we were talking about Odysseus, and I was like, okay, so Odysseus, you know, is really wily and clever, but when he tells the Cyclops Polyphemus that he is Odysseus the Marauder, when he revels in his own, you know, badness, that's where he makes his horrible mistake. We don't have anything to go on for Neoptolemus's or Pyrrhus's character here. The old, but notice how he, like, the first things out of his mouth are embracing that he is inferior to his father, both as a fighter and viciously. My sad behavior and how degenerate his son has become. Like, Pyrrhus revels in his degeneracy, in how awful he is. Odysseus, at the very least, is, you know, making something ironic here. He's saying, you know, I am Odysseus the Marauder, just like you said. You know, yeah, tell them that Odysseus the Marauder did this to you, because I've already beaten you. And Odysseus is wrong to do this, but Neoptolemus is even more wrong here. Like, he is totally, like, totally base, totally vicious, totally degenerate, and he is totally willing to admit it, totally reveling in it. He kills Priam in this sort of sick, bestial lust here. So saying he dragged Priam, trembling and slipping in his son's blood up to the altar. Winding his left hand in the old man's hair with his right, he lifted his flashing sword and buried it up to its hilt in his side. So ended Priam. Such was his fated doom as Troy burned before his eyes and Pergamum fell. Once the lord of so many peoples, the sovereign of Asia, he lies now a huge trunk upon the shore, head severed from his neck, a corpse without a name. Now this is, to some degree, the matter of Greek mythology as well. It is a matter of the tradition that Neoptolemus kills Priam on the, the same altar that Priam himself consecrated, as Virgil points out earlier. Um, it is recognized that Neoptolemus is in the throes of rage here, that he is, you know, beyond sort of like recommendation. But notice that this is a pattern throughout this passage. Um, everywhere you see the Greeks being described, they are presented as bloodthirsty or monstrous, or for that matter, cowards. Like the first Greeks that Aeneas in fact encounters uh, once the, the sack of Troy is, is well underway, is this one random dude, like, who thinks that he is, in fact, another Greek soldier, because, you know, at this point, he's, like, thinks that anyone who's standing and carrying a sword is probably Greek, with the fact that the Trojans are being, like, totally massacred at this point. Um, this is Androgios on line 433. Androgios offered himself to us first, heading up a large company of Greeks. He mistook us for an allied band and called, On the double man! What took you so long? But notice... 439, he realized at once from our tentative reply that we were the enemy, he froze, choked on his own words, and then tried to backpedal, like a man who has stepped on a snake hidden in briars and in sudden terror cringes when it rears and puffs out its purple hood. Androgios was shaking and backing away when we charged and hedged them in. Notice that the first Greeks we encounter are mercilessly coming through the streets, murdering women and children not recognizing any man standing, and immediately when they realize that they could potentially put up a fight, they run away. Then we get Neoptolemus mercilessly, brutally murdering Priam on the, on the altar to Athena, like, in front of the corpse of his own son who died before Priam's eyes. Like, the picture we're getting of the Greeks is totally unsympathetic here. There is no redeeming value 
for any of the Greeks at any point in this passage. Like, none of the Greeks ever stop, none of the Greeks ever, you know, do anything decent. And again, on the one hand, this has precedent. The story of the, the burning of Troy, as we've seen it in Apollodorus, as, you know, it's discussed by other Greek writers at the time, talks a lot about the horrors, the atrocities committed by the Greeks. You know, little Ajax's rape of Cassandra, or, uh, you know, Achilles murdering, Pri or Neopolemus murdering Priam on the altar. You know, it's basically part of the tradition that the Greeks really lose control of their good sense here. Um, and, you know, Euripides definitely backs that up in his discussion of the Trojan women. Like, even Athena is disgusted with the Greeks' behavior. But it's one thing for the Greeks to emphasize that about themselves and use this as a sort of caution and warning to their own people, not to let rage and bloodlust get, uh, carry them away. You know, when Homer criticizes Achilles and the Greek army for doing these various things, he's doing it intentionally, doing it as a sort of expression of moral worth. By contrast, notice that no such thing exists for any of the Trojan characters. They are all upstanding, heroic, tragic in some cases. You know, Priam is willing to stand up before, like, impossibly before this Greek army, armed in an attempt to make some last feudal desperate defense of his city. That's all good depiction here. What we are getting is not, you know, all humans are flawed, Greek and Trojan, you know, Hector commits hubris, Achilles commits hubris, this is just how people are, it's the war itself that's the problem, the way that Homer talks about it. Virgil is presenting this as a clear racial distinction. Greeks are bad, Trojans are good. Greeks are awful and monstrous and terrible, Trojans slash Romans are honorable and respectable and virtuous. That's the first thing that always frustrates me about this. And on the one hand, again, this is a compelling passage. Like, I do not want to deny this. There's a reason why I love teaching this book. It's got some great detail. Um, which you'll notice that Virgil tends to stay away from those big Homeric speeches, like you don't have, you know, big long speech by Priam followed up by big long speech by Neoptolemus or Pyrrhus, like they get like a paragraph and a half and that's about the end of it. Um, we don't get like Aeneas trading long speeches with other heroes or, or stuff like that the way that we were used to seeing in Homer. Instead, Virgil loves his description, and he's awesome at it. Like, here is, you know, one of the nice things that I am saying to offset the, the fairly negative things I have to say about Virgil. Um, like, Virgil has a really great eye for sort of describing the world of Troy here, emphasizing its grandeur and its beauty especially. Um, like, the emphasis that Virgil is consistently making throughout this passage is that this is a great, wonderful place that is currently suffering this horrific, terrible tragedy. Um, Virgil causes us, like, inclines us to feel sympathetic for the people of Troy here with incredible pathos, in much the same way that Euripides is doing the same for the Trojan women. Um, notice the passage, this is right around line 715, here where you see piles of rubble, stones wrenched from stones, and plumes of smoke and dust, 
is Neptune, shaking the walls he has pried up with his great trident and uprooting the city from its foundations. Over here, Juno, ferocious in her iron vest, first to hold the western gates, summons with her usual fury reinforcements from the ships. And now look up. Tritonian palace is already seated on the highest towers, glowing from a thunderhead, grim with her gorgon. The father himself gives the Greeks courage and strength and incites the gods to oppose the Trojans. Hurry away, my son, and end your struggle. I will bring you safely to your father's door. So Venus has given Aeneas the ability for a moment to see the gods dismantling the city. She emphasizes, it is the gods, the remorseless gods, who have ruined Troy and burnt the topless towers of Ilium. Notice, then we get this really awesome description. Like, this is something that we wouldn't normally see in Homer. The gods usually don't interact with the world in these dramatic ways. Like, the gods tend to be subtle about it. They'll snap the, the band that connects the helmet to the head in order to, you know, change the way that the duel is going. Here we see friggin' Neptune with his trident prying up the walls of Troy. Like, you gotta kind of imagine, like, 30-foot-tall Neptune you know, just with his trident wedged into the foundations of the wall, like, ripping it apart. Like, that's some really awesome description. And what's more, you know, Virgil kind of loves these depictions of the gods at odds with human beings. Like, I don't think Virgil's depiction of the gods here is nearly as consistent as, in it, as it is in Homer. I suspect that he's once again cribbing without not, without necessarily knowing why he's cribbing what he is. Um, but he will frequently make reference to just how unpredictable the gods are, which is kind of weird. Like, on the one hand, Venus is our patron here, and she is 100% helping Aeneas all the time because Aeneas is her kid. Um, which, you know, that tracks. Like, the gods are frequently selfish. They're frequently, you know, championing their own people. Um, we do get that scene where, like, she and Juno are apparently trying to figure out, like, you know, Juno is trying to seduce Aeneas into staying in Carthage because apparently Juno really likes Carthage and having Aeneas there would be really awesome and would glorify Carthage. And Venus is like, mm, I don't know about this, but apparently we just go along with it in book four. Again, I don't think the behavior of the gods is terribly consistent here, but they are way more scary and formidable here, especially when sort of pitted against the mortals than they often are in Homer. Like, for Homer, the gods are at their most scary when they're talking to you. Apollo telling Diomedes that he will squash him like a bug. Or, you know, Apollo, like, slapping Patroclus on the back and utterly immobilizing him. Or Zeus threatening the other gods, I can carry you all with this golden thread. Like, it's pretty rare that we see the gods actually, like, conducting this sort of grand warfare on its own. The one scene where we do see that is where Achilles is fighting the Scamander, like the river itself starts beating against Achilles, and it's just this awesome combat scene. Like, I love it. There's a reason why I dwelt on it as much as we did back then. Um, that's like the one case, and this is a minor god who's like not even, you know, terribly important to the story. Um, here we actually see, like, the gods personally, single-handedly dismantling the city. Um, and on the one hand, this doesn't fit. This doesn't make any sense. Like, Virgil is, you know, 
giving us a picture that doesn't track with the way that the sacking of the city has been going so far. Like, if this was in fact the case, what the heck were the Greeks waiting for? They could just be like, hey, Poseidon, can we wreck the city now? And Poseidon's like, sure. And, like, he just starts ripping apart the walls single-handedly. Why devise a Trojan horse when the gods are doing this in the first place? Um, it seems pretty clear, especially from the way that Homer describes it and the way that Virgil describes it most of the time, that, like, the gods are acting in small and unnoticed ways, that the Greeks really aren't doing all that much damage to the city, except insofar as they've set it on fire and stuff. Um, but the picture is really compelling nonetheless, as sort of inconsistent as it might be with this attitude generally. Um, so watch that, like... By all means, come to your own conclusions about the way that Virgil portrays the gods. I am hardly an expert on this text in the way that I am about the Iliad and the Odyssey at this point, just from having read them as many times as I have. So if you're seeing something different, or if you read something different, by all means, uh, like show me the, the sense behind what I apparently am reading as nonsense. Um, at any rate, it makes for some great description, and that's what I really want to emphasize here. Um, something that Virgil can afford to do because Virgil is writing this text down instead of just repeating it or, you know, preserving it orally. But enough about the Sack of Troy. Um, as fascinating as it is, I do want to move on to the other sections, and we got to talk about the love affair. Um, first off, I should stress, Homer doesn't do anything like this. This is obviously, like, totally new Virgil stuff. And Virgil especially is known for his love poetry, like... The, the, his other poetry frequently involves, you know, like, people pining after each other, people feeling these sort of romantic emotions for one another. Notice that Homer has never done this. Um, nobody ever falls in love in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Like, the closest we get is, you know, Nausicaa gets a little hot for Odysseus, even though we know perfectly well that that's never going to work out, and she knows that as well. We get, like, Calypso and Circe talking about their feelings for Odysseus from time to time, but that's always after the fact. Like, Homer never describes, you know, and that's how Calypso fell in love with Odysseus. Look, no, it's like, Calypso and Odysseus have been, you know, sleeping together for many years now, and we're just gonna, like, come in at the tail end here. And I think that's intentional on Homer's part. Um, like, most of the male and female relationships he's describing are already around for a long time, or we only get to see little bits of them, like Circe and, and Odysseus, or Nausicaa and Odysseus. Um, by contrast, we get a full-on romance here. At least, sort of. Like, Dido is apparently falling head over heels for Aeneas. And why wouldn't she? He's handsome and awesome, and his son is cute, and he is manly, and, you know, basically the embodiment of every possible Roman virtue, which, of course, is the best Roman, best virtues. Um, like, to some degree, you know, I do find it a little hard to swallow, for sure, but it is something that, you know, Virgil does that Homer doesn't ever try to do. It is a more important element of this story. And that's interesting. I suspect that this might very well be a Roman versus Greek culture thing. The Greeks don't have a very high opinion of romance, generally. Um, you'll notice that, like, throughout just Greek mythology in general, any time that a man falls in love with a woman, it tends to be a huge problem. Um, like Paris falling in love with Helen, or, you know, like... Uh, What's-his-face what's falling in love with Medea at various points. Like, ultimately, this 
is just destructive. Women are temptresses. We were told that by Hesiod, and therefore romantic love for a woman will almost always end in tragedy for the Greeks. Um, very rarely does it turn out well. And the romances that do tend to turn out the best are the ones in, that are not fueled by some sort of hot lust for one another. Like Odysseus and Persephone, or not Persephone, sorry, uh, Odysseus and Penelope, his love for her is motivated as much by, you know, economic reasons and practicality as it is by her looks, and as a consequence, his love for her is way more enduring, or so it would seem. Um, for the Greeks, marriage and romance is kind of not the same thing, should not be the same thing, should be kept very carefully in separate boxes and never allowed to interact with each other. For the Romans, though, romance is a big deal. Um, Ovid... Virgil, many of these writers emphasize love in poetry and in the sort of interactions between people. This is a huge part of their culture, which is a little weird on the one hand, because the Romans generally don't have an, a terribly high opinion of romance. Remember that, again, this is an Emperor, Emperor Augustus's day where, you know, his kids running away with each other is actually proving to be a huge problem and he's trying to like stamp this out and stoicism is running rampant um the romans have a kind of not quite consistent view on how romance and love is supposed to work uh, but at any rate it shows up here virgil gives us an account start to finish of the romance between dido and aeneas and i should stress this is considered by many writers throughout history to be one of the greatest love stories ever told. Now again, maybe it's my bias, but I think that's kind of nonsense. Um, like, yes, we will get to the important great love parts in a moment, but first off, in my mind, a great love story should have a really good beginning and not necessarily a really good ending like maybe it's just my experience with romantic comedies which my wife insists on me becoming knowledgeable about and i have in fact evinced a fondness for after enough of them um i think that there should be quote chemistry between the two people involved um and dido and aeneas kind of it's just given to us. Like, we don't get much in the way of occasion for them falling in love with each other. Dido starts by falling in love with Ascanius, his son. Apparently his son is cute. Don't read into it. It's not creepy, I promise. I have no idea. Um, and then, like, apparently d when Aeneas tells Dido the story of his travel, she, like, falls in love with him. Like, wow, you're so strong and awesome. And I, I mean, I can get that to some degree, except for the fact that like half of that story is full of blood and guts and murder and horror and tragedy. Like if in fact you're coming away from, and then my father died on, or no, then Priam died on the steps of the altar while Neoptolemus gloated over his corpse and Dido's thinking, oh, that's so sweet. Like, what? Did, were you listening to the same story here? Like, did you miss what, what's going on there? And then finally, like, the actual consummation, the, the you know, real moment when they apparently do the deed. Um, like, it's all contrived by Juno and Venus. Like, Juno's like, oh, I'm gonna have, you know, Dido and Aeneas fall in love and maybe marry, and then he'll stay here, and Carthage will be awesome. And it's like, oh, 
okay, fine, you know, the gods are manipulating them, that's not abnormal, sure. You know, Venus is even sort of manipulating Dido by having, like, Cupid show up instead of Ascanius. I don't know what's going on. Um, suffice it to say, they get, like, this... They're going out on this hunting party, and then it rains, and then they have to, like, take shelter in this cave. You know, the warm, sexy cave. Although they're apparently there with a bunch of other people. So, you know... I don't know. Usually when I would expect to see, like, oh, you know, they're forced to take shelter under the same umbrella from the rain, like, that's classic. I see that all the time in romantic comedies, and yes, I can totally buy that. But the important thing is that they're alone, and here they're not. Like, they're in the cave, and their kids are there, and, like, Ulysses is hanging out, and, you know, all of their, like, servants and handmaids and stuff, and various you know, sailors from Aeneas' ships, and they're all, like, bumming out in this really cramped cave, and Aeneas and Dido is like, hey, you want to do it? And it's like, okay, and they just do it in front of all these people? I don't know. I have no idea. It's not romantic from where I'm sitting, but I get that, you know, different cultures, different attitudes, different perspectives. It's close enough, right? Um, at any rate, apparently there's also a miscommunication during this point. Um... This is line 194. No longer is Dido swayed by appearances or her good name. No more does she contemplate a secret love. She calls it marriage, and with that word, she cloaks her sin. <sighs> Alright, so... So apparently this is wrong, because Dido had a husband and was married to him and was faithful to him, and when he died, she, like, swore this really important vow that like, she'd never be with another man in order to, you know, respect his memory or something. And on the one hand, Anna, her sister, is like, why would you do that? Like, here is an actual man who you actually care about. What's wrong with love? Like, in this big speech on, page, on uh, around line 40 to 60, we get this argument here. Um, there would be a lot of advantages to getting together with Aeneas, she says. Like, not just, you know, the fact that you like him, um, will you waste your youth and spinsterhood alone and grieving, never to taste love's joys, she asks. But also, just, you know, need I mention the war clouds gathering over Tyre and your brother's threats? I think the providential gods, with Juno behind them, have blown these Trojan ships our way. With a husband like this, what a city, sister, what a kingdom you would see rise. Um, now, on the one hand, I'm really not sure what Virgil is trying to tell us here. On the one hand, he's emphasizing the sin of Dido. She has violated her relationship and her vow to her husband by sleeping with Aeneas, and is therefore criminal and wrong. On the other hand, we get a pretty compelling argument from Anna that I would tend to think is pretty legitimate. Anna seems, you know, pretty close to the moral center. It's not like she's scheming here. Like, we obviously can't trust Juno because Juno is Team Carthage, and Carthage is bad! Um, but nonetheless, like... Okay, so is it okay that they're hooking up? Is it bad that they're hooking up? What's more, it's further complicated and made messy by the fact that this is apparently, like, confusion between Aeneas and Dido. Like, apparently Dido thinks that this is all about marriage and that this is, you know, they're actually making a commitment where Aeneas is like, hey, baby, let's just do this for one night and call it a day. And, like, this is even emphasized when, you know, in fact, Venus, like, kicks Aeneas's butt via Mercury, and Aeneas is like, oh crap, I have to break up with her. This is going to be bad. Like, we actually get this speech from Aeneas that I find just painful to read. 
Um, line 377. My queen, I will never deny that you have earned my gratitude in more ways than can be said, nor will I ever regret having known Alyssa as long as memory endures and the spirit still rules these limbs of mine. I do have a few things to say on my own behalf. I never hope to steal away from your land in secret, and you should never imagine I did, nor have I ever proposed marriage to you or entered into any nuptial agreement. Fuck you, Aeneas. Seriously? Like... Really? On the one hand, I get it. Like, we have this situation where, you know, Virgil is constructing this relationship between Dido and Aeneas, which is in fact the matter of tradition, and is in fact this great myth that has been going down presumably for many generations, though I honestly cannot trace the origins of this one. I don't know how much of an invention all of this is. And this is a pretty good way of sort of navigating around these issues. Dido thinks this is real. Aeneas never thought that. Aeneas just thought that this was hooking up. But, like, again, the extrinsic reading can't help but be made here. From the intrinsic perspective, Virgil is trying to make a compelling romance. And he does, to some degree. Here's Dido, who, in her womanly ways, gets confused, thinks it's real when it's not... But from the extrinsic reading, this is fucked up. Like, really seriously fucked up. Oh, those women always thinking that you're serious when the guys are just down to clown for a little bit. Like, come on. Really? Dido deserved better than that. Dido deserves a little bit more respect, a little bit more integrity, a little bit more characterization than hysterical woman thinks marriage when Aeneas is just, you know, a playboy. What's more... Aeneas is just a playboy here. Like, I get, again, Greek and Roman values are different from our own. This would have been way more acceptable to the Greek and Roman mind. Like, the Greeks and Romans would have read this and been like, yep, Aeneas checks out. He never proposed marriage to her. Like, really? Like, we're just going to get him completely off the hook here. And notice Aeneas' reaction here. Consistently throughout, Aeneas goes full stoic. Like... Here we are, you know, Aeneas and Dido facing each other, finally admitting their emotions. Like, Aeneas recognizes, I have to break up with her because it is my mission to found Rome and to be the king of the Latins. And, you know, I would deny my inheritance to my son Ascanius if I did not do this. Um, like, on the one hand, okay, yeah, he's a man. He's got a job to do. He's important and tough and has important tough things to do but really this is framed as this really important tragic romance like star-crossed lovers doomed in their personal feelings for each other to have to part from one another but what it really comes off to to me is Aeneas being an asshole to a Dido who really cares about him and I can't excuse it like, Virgil makes Dido out to be this hysterical, unnecessarily, like, clingy, you know, horrible woman who doesn't recognize the fact that she is just one stop on the line for this great hero, and she should just be glad that she got to spend the night with Aeneas, and possibly also be guilty for, you know, violating her vow to her husband, like, despite being manipulated by Venus and by Juno and by everybody else in this situation. I can't. I really can't. Like, I know I've been excusing Homer left and right from the misogyny claim. Like, he is not 
you know, endorsing the Greek attitude towards women. But I cannot see past it with Virgil. He's taking too many deliberate choices that paint Dido out to be awful and Aeneas out to be stoic and heroic and awesome. Um, to the point that, like, notice Dido goes full-on, like, crazy, bitchy ex-girlfriend by the end of this. Like, she goes full, you know, Greek Medea witch level. You know, we get this scene where she, like, instructs Anna to pile all of the stuff that Aeneas left behind, along with their bed, which they shared, onto this pyre, which, you know, secretly turns out to be Dido's own funeral pyre. And then she, like, dramatically gets on the pyre and is like, I curse Aeneas, and the city of Carthage will always be at war with the city of Rome, and I kill myself on this sword. Like, on the one hand, it's really badass. On the other hand, it's really painful again from that 21st century perspective like this reading that you know Aeneas is just so awesome that he drives Dido to think that he was going to marry her but of course he never said anything like that because you know he knows his mission comes first and Dido is so distracted that she ends up killing himself herself over him like this is bad James Bond level crap here. Like, James Bond magically transforms the villainous henchwoman into his ally with the power of his magic dong. Like, no. Just no. Come on. Come on! And on the one hand, we have to recognize. Yep. Lots of people, over lots of time, are going to consider this one of the greatest romances ever written. I should emphasize, 90% of those people are going to be white dudes. And 90% of those people are going to absolutely subscribe to the Roman attitude, namely, stoicism is good, patriotism is good, loyalty to the state is good, and personal feelings are bad. But this is like toxic masculinity being presented on the page to you. Like, the next time that somebody asks you, why are men like this, you can literally point to this book and be like, this! This is why men are like this. This was the manual for how to be a good Roman. Follow Aeneas. Be like Aeneas. He is the greatest hero of Rome ever. If you are like Aeneas, you will glorify Rome and make our city better and be the best version of yourself. And he's a dick. Like, everything that makes toxic masculinity toxic is like right here glorified for all to see. It sucks. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Like, yes, it is compelling. Yes, it is romantic. Yes, Dido is presented as tragic when she's not being presented as awful or monstrous or witchy or whatever you want to sort of, like, take away from it. Again, there's a lot going on here, and I honestly can't tell if it's psychological insight on the part of a Virgil having, what, having broken many a woman's heart, or alternatively, if this is just misogynistic bigotry basically coming through and depicting women as unpredictable and monstrous. Like, notice... She does the classic spurned lover move here. She invokes the black goddesses, Hecate and Nyx. Like, she does all of her witchy black magic stuff. It's just... In 2022, this reads as so tone-deaf, and as so misogynistic, and as so tropey, and as so stereotypical hysterical woman behavior that I cannot look back at this text and say, ah, it's original here, and therefore okay. No! You made the trope here, and that's bad! 
Like, it's not the first time this trope has happened by a long shot. Like, you can definitely see echoes of Medea here. There are a couple of lines that Dido drops that sounds directly like Calypso or Circe at various points in the Odyssey. So we are clearly ripping off Homer here. But one of the things that Virgil is doing is ripping off Homer without recognition for the consequences. When Calypso goes full, I can't believe you are taking Odysseus away from me, the context is, it is unfair, this is a double standard. For Dido, it's just, I love him so much, I will kill you! Like, what? The passage that I find the most compelling in all of this is actually the one that is probably meant to be the most hysterical. Namely, when Dido responds to Aeneas's stoic, manly breakup speech, she responds, your mother was no goddess, you faithless bastard, and you aren't descended from Dardanus either. No, you were born out of flint in the Caucasus and suckled by tigers in the wilds of Scythia. Ah, uh, why should I hold back? Did he sigh as I wept? Did he even look at me? Did he give in to tears or show any pity for the woman who loved him? What shall I say first? What next? It has come to this. Neither great Juno nor the Saturnian father looks on these things with impartial eyes. Good faith is found nowhere. I took him in, shipwrecked and destitute on my shore, and insanely shared my throne with him. I recovered his fleet and rescued his men. Notice... At least from where I'm sitting, she is 100% right in this speech. But notice the framing here. Virgil introduces this speech with, while he is speaking, she looks him up and down with icy sidelong glares, stares at him blankly, and then erupts into volcanic fury. And as much as this speech is totally on point, and also Homeric references, you were born out of flint in the Caucasus and suckled by tigers in the wilds of Scythia, that sounds a lot like Patroclus condemning Achilles. You have a heart of flint or a heart of stone, a heart of ice. The sea spat you out. You had no mother. Con Likewise, around 4.30, I took him in, shipwrecked and destitute on my shore, and insanely shared my throne with him. You take out the insanely, and you get Calypso's speech. I rescued him. I cared about him. But notice the context has changed here. Now... We are meant to distrust poor Dido here, where we were supposed to take Patroclus and Calypso at face value. What is presented here as the ravings of a hysterical woman are ripped from Homer where they were presented as logical and compelling arguments. Achilles was wrong in that passage. He was being unsympathetic, and that's why Patroclus dies, and you are right to condemn him for this, something the Romans might very well have missed in their reading of Homer. Likewise, when Calypso says, I took him in, I took him in after you shipwrecked him, Calypso is saying, I have more claim to his faith than you do because you keep screwing him over. Whereas here, it's presented as this crazy woman who wants to divert Aeneas from his fate, which is to found Rome, and she is also Carthaginian, let us not forget, the mortal enemies of Rome who will ultimately be destroyed because Rome is just that awesome. 
Notice her curse, though, at the end of this speech. I hope, she says, if there is any power in heaven, you will suck down your punishment on rocks in mid-ocean, calling Dido's name over and over. Gone I may be, but I'll pursue you with black fire, and when cold death has cloven body from soul, my ghost will be everywhere. You will pay, you despicable liar, and I will hear the news. Word will reach me in the deeps of hell. I want this to be true. Like, is that weird? I feel like the setup that Virgil is giving us is Dido is hysterical. She's going to curse Aeneas. She's going to divert him from her from his fate. She is a temptation. She is a witch. She is a monster. And all I can feel is sympathy. Yeah, he's a monster. Yeah, he lied to you, or at least led you on. He gaslit the living crap out of you, to use our contemporary parlance. Yeah, he, his heart is made of flint and he was suckled by tigers. Yes, you took him in, shipwrecked and destitute. Yes, you care for him. And he screwed you over and by all means, pursue him to his dying day. See him sucked down in the ocean. But that's, of course, not what happens. And in fact, Aeneas does meet Dido in the underworld. Like, while pottering around down there, Dido, in fact, bumps into Aeneas, but notice that she doesn't do anything. She, like, gets sad and walks away. They don't even talk. Like, if anything, Aeneas is the one who tries to reach out to, him, to her. She's like, oh no, Dido, what happened? You, you did the thing that I thought you were going to do. And, like, what? Like, at the very least, give Dido the dignity of, like, standing over his shoulders, being like, Ugh! or scare the crap out of him or something. Like, please, give her something. But no, she's just a stop along the way for Aeneas. No, not meaningful at all. Just, you know, one more box to check on the we've got to hit all the mythological references here. So, I don't know. On the one hand, I want to say, yes, terrible tragedy, star-crossed lovers, Romeo and Juliet, Troilus and Cressida, like, okay. But really, at the end of the day, if you find this incredibly compelling, I'm actually concerned for you. Because this is not what a healthy relationship is supposed to look like. And as much as, you know, we get these lamentations and Dido's feelings are so strong that she kills herself over him, and as much as there are some really key details that are really emotional. Again, like, her stacking up all of Aeneas's stuff, and then she, like, goes to kill herself on the pyre, and she, like, hesitates. She's like, oh, oh, I remember, you know, the time we spent in this bed, the thing that he left here. Like, I feel that. I remember that when I had gotten over a bad breakup or something. Like, I can totally identify. But I don't think it was good. I don't think that that, you know, was indicative of how strong my romance was. Like, Virgil may have a good eye for, you know, the psychological fallout after a relationship, but even so, Dido's not presented positively here. As much as she is sympathetic, we kind of vacillate pretty quickly between, you know, wrong, spurned lover and horrible, psycho bitch. Like... That's not okay. That's not a decent presentation of women, and it's way out of sync with the way that Homer tends to express women's perspectives and attitudes. Like, as much as he is ripping from Calypso here, Calypso was way stronger 
was way more powerful. She didn't pine after Odysseus after he's gone. She, you know, did what the gods made her without, while also expressing the fact that this was not fair. This was irrational. This was lousy of them. Zeus is a monster for enforcing his will in this case. But of course, the point of this book isn't, you know, women's feelings, or even to depict Aeneas's feelings, except insofar as he is manly and heroic and stoic. You know, as much as we get scenes that invoke Homer's love of psychology and, and Homer's sort of interest in these relationships, we also get these scenes that very much seem much more important that are just like, and here's how awesome Rome is. Like, take a look at book six in the little bit of time we have left. I wish I could have dedicated more time to it, and that there is honestly a lot more to say about book six than we'll have the time to do. Notice that, like, the entire mission, the whole reason why Aeneas is coming into the underworld in the first place is to see his dad. Anchises died somewhere in book two, or rather in, like, somewhere between book one and two or something. He's dead by the time that he gets to Dido. Um, and he wants to visit him. Like, we don't have the explicit, you know, we have to get instructions from Anchises indication that we got when Odysseus had to go visit Tiresias in the underworld. Like, honestly, this definitely seems like a contrived reason to just shoehorn more Homeric stuff into the Aeneid, but again, I'm getting judgy here and should probably stop. Um, all of this kind of culminates with Aeneas finally meets Anchises, and we get that, again, heart-wrenching moment. He tries to embrace his father. Notice, father, not mother. Romans are daddy's boys, not mama's boys. Those dang Greeks, they're a bunch of wimps, but again, get off the ranting box. He embraces Anchises, and that's important, and it's kind of, you know, powerful and stuff, and, you know, a moment. But it's immediately sort of stalled by Anchises saying, oh, by the way, here are all of the unborn heroes of Rome. And we are introduced to them. Like, for two and a half pages, we get, you know, here are all of the legendary successors of Aeneas. We get your wife and your son and, you know, Romulus, of course, the founder of Rome. And we even get references to Julius and Augustus Caesar. Like, they are the children of Ulysses, who is totally an invention of Virgil to sort of, like, justify Julius Caesar. Again, political points all throughout this text. But that's the point. Like... Yeah, there's a moment between uh, between Aeneas and Anchises, but it is just as set up to talk about how awesome Rome is, how cool all of their successors will be, how great the empire that Aeneas builds, how great his destiny will turn out to be. Like, start to finish, word one to the last word in book 12 is basically Aeneas is important. Because Rome is important. Because Rome is the greatest empire the world will ever know. And the promise of Rome that we're shown here in Book 6 is immense. Like, your mission, Roman, is to rule the world, we're told in 1000, line 1015. These will be your arts to establish peace, to spare the humbled, and to conquer the proud. This is basically the functional theme of this work. This is Rome's origin story, the prequel to Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar taking over Rome, as was their mandate, because they derived their authority directly from Aeneas, because Aeneas' son is their father in some sense. The entire 
text here is this weapon designed to justify the current authority of the emperors and to enshrine and encourage the legacy of Rome, to encourage Stoic values, to discourage romance and side plots and Greekness and all of those things that the Romans despise. But as much as I, you know, am really painting a dark, ugly picture of what this text is doing, I should emphasize two things about this book in particular, book six, that really stood out to me and that I really appreciated. First and foremost are the torments of the various terrible people here. We're going to see a little bit of this when we get to Dante, but notice that, in fact, Virgil dwells a lot, even more than the Greeks do. By far more than Homer does with the Odyssey, but like even the best Greek poets never get this in depth about the plight of the dead. Um, like usually when a Greek hero wanders into the underworld for one reason or another, we'll get the usual set of torments. Like Sisyphus is rolling his rock, and Tidios is getting his liver eaten, and Ixion's on the wheel, and Tantalus is like, you know, constantly reaching for food he can't get or drinking water he can't reach. Um, it's this whole thing. But it's always isolated incidents. The gods have reserved terrible punishments for these people because these people screwed over the gods in some way, and it is personal, not just. That is typically Greek. The Greeks don't see justice in the world very often, at least not until Plato. Um, they tend to think that the world is cruel and arbitrary, and if you do screw over the gods, the gods will get you back for it eventually. But the Roman view is much more orderly. All of these dead souls are in line to be judged by King Minos or King Radamanthus, the ones who have betrayed terrible or have committed terrible betrayals against their families or against their nation are in line to be punished in various ways. Um, we see, you know, the terrible traitors of Rome lining up to be horribly treated and judged. Um, and while we do get some of those classic Greek indications, that we see Titios, we see um, Ixion, notice that their judgment, their punishments are presented here as orderly, organized, being warranted, not, you know, the arbitrary and capricious nature of the gods, much as, you know, the Aeneid has been emphasizing the arbitrariness of the gods numerous times in this text. Like, again, we saw the gods turning against Troy for no good reason. He even makes that explicit. But that's only half-hearted. Because here we see the order of the universe for real. We see bad people getting punished for being bad and good people being rewarded for being good. Notice that there is an actual kind of quasi-heaven here. Like, unlike Achilles, the great hero of, of the Trojan War, or Heracles, the greatest hero of all the Greeks, who are miserable in death, and which paint this really grim picture of the underworld, here we're presented with Anchises living it up, having a good time, enjoying his afterlife, watching his successors be born into the world through this mysterious metaphysical process of reincarnation that seems kind of platonic and kind of quasi-stoic, like it's this whole thing, I'm not going to get into it now. But I think that Virgil is depicting a much richer view of the underworld than we have seen from the Greeks, and a much richer metaphysical glimpse of divine order than the Greeks are inclined to give us. The Romans are more optimistic, 
And some of that informs, you know, again, their sort of patriotism and their attitude and so on and so forth. You know, some of this is justification. The world is orderly, so serve Rome and, you know, be rewarded in kind. It just kind of redounds to that Roman glory, patriotism, jingoism, propaganda thing that I keep talking about. But at the same time, I find it compelling. The Stoic view of the afterlife does seem to me more compelling than the Homeric one as fascinating as the Homeric view and as consistent as the Homeric view actually is. But the second thing that really fascinates me is the ending of this section. Line 1063 of Book 6, There are two gates of sleep. One, they say, is horn, and offers easy exit for true shades. The other is finished with glimmering ivory, but through it the spirits send false dreams to the world above. Anchises escorted his son as he talked, then sent him with the sibyl through the gate of ivory. Aeneas made his way to the ships, rejoined his men, and sailed along the coast to Caeta's harbor. They cast anchor from the prow, the sterns faced the shore. Alright, so the two gates we should recognize. This is a direct reference to the Odyssey, where Penelope is telling about her dreams and saying that there are two you know, gates that dreams pass through when they come to you from sleep, and one is horn and one is ivory, and if they come through horn, they're true, and if they come from ivory, they're false. Like, this is, once again, Homeric detail just dropped into the text. And on the one hand, I'm tempted to say this is another case where Virgil doesn't know what he's doing. Obviously, if Aeneas is as heroic as we're making it out to be, and as if, if all of this is true, he should be walking through the gate of horn, right? The true one. But he doesn't. He walks through the gate of ivory. And on the one hand, I'm tempted to think that this is more inconsistency on Virgil's part. But on the other, I'm really tempted to think that there might be something more to it. And as far as I can tell, like from a cursory examination of the literature, by which I mean I went to Wikipedia and tried to figure out whether anyone's talking about this, oh, they are. Everyone is talking about this passage. This is one of the most highly disputed thematic passages in the entire text. Nobody knows why Aeneas walks through the gate of ivory. But everybody notices it. Everybody is scratching their head over it, like I am. Everybody is trying to figure out what the game is here. And one of my favorite writers ever, Jorge Luis Borges, has his own theory. Namely that reality itself is a fiction. And this I can't help but admire. I have to wonder if all of these details that Virgil is incorporating, all of the Homeric references, all of the propaganda, all of the celebration of Roman heroes, all of these great things which we know to be true based on history, based on the discussions, and that he still has Aeneas walk through the horn of or the Gate of Ivory, I have to wonder if Virgil isn't being entirely honest with us. If Virgil is sort of tipping his hat to us, winking to us, saying, yeah, this sounds better than real, because it is. On some level, I think Virgil appreciates the fact that what he's doing is bullshit. That he knows he's not going to be able to write some epic on the level of Homer. 
that he knows that Rome is just singing its own praises and mythologizing its own history, turning it into this story that can be celebrated and, you know, talked about for generations to come, trying to overcome that Greek legacy. And I have to think that Virgil knows this. That Virgil is aware that he's kind of being prostituted here. He's too good a poet not to notice the inconsistencies, the stolen passages, the somewhat like clumsily incorporated Homeric elements. Right here, at the nearly exact midpoint of the text, a point that is usually really important in a lot of various texts and literary traditions, like talk to me sometime about the Semitic tradition and chiasmus and stuff, Right here at the center of the text, Virgil tells us it might be a lie. It might all be made up. It might all be fantasy. And as fantasy, I can totally get behind this text. I can totally appreciate a world where, you know, heroes get their just desserts in the underworld, and where great men found great cities and everything is right with the world, where the gods are fair and just and everything proceeds according to plan. As fantasy, this works. As propaganda, as history, as reality, it doesn't. If this is all just archetype, I can be a lot more nice to this poem than I usually can. It's still got problems. I'm not going to excuse the whole Aeneas Dido thing. I still think that's really messed up, much as I can understand it as being the product of tropes and tradition and all of that. But that's what I think Virgil might be doing here. Recognizing that he is a product of fictional tradition that he is ascribing to a mythological origin that he himself might not believe in. And he's going to do his damnedest to write a compelling version of it. But it will, at the end of the day, be fantasy. And that means we're having a completely different conversation here. That means we're having a conversation not about you know, the Romans seeing themselves as this, but the Romans fantasizing themselves as this. Which, now you're into the whole conversation of fascist fantasy, and, you know, like how people today sort of use these propagandizing instincts to create a sort of fictional world around themselves. Now I can see what my roommate was arguing, that we should have an ideal to aspire to. Aeneas doesn't work as a historical figure, doesn't work as a role model, except insofar as he is presented as larger than life. Impossible, but someone admirable. His stoic virtues being something that we should, in fact, practice in our own lives, even if they do occasionally border on the utterly insensitive. As fantasy, we're having a conversation about, is this something we want? and not, is this how the Romans understand themselves? But of course, it's just one passage. And it's not a passage that most people are inclined to interpret in that particular way. The Romans would have seen this text as true, despite the hint that Virgil might be dropping here. And generally, we don't have a consistent metaphysics underlying this text. We don't know 
why the gods work the way they do, why the underworld makes sense but the gods do not, all of that. Why Venus behaves like a decent person while the rest of the gods seem to betray their own principles on a regular basis. We don't have a consistent reasoning for that the way we do in Homer. At the very least, this opens up interpretive possibility. There's a richness to this question that infects and informs the rest of the text. Doesn't necessarily forgive it, but does certainly fire my imagination. Next time we're moving back to history. We're going to look at Homer through the ages, through the Middle Ages especially, or at least what we like to call the Middle Ages. I'm not entirely sure what all we're going to get into. I am still coming up with the PowerPoint for that one, so we'll talk about that in its own time. Do, however, remember this specific passage, and especially Book 6, because we will be talking about it in more detail once we get to Dante. After we talk about the Middle Ages, we're going to look at Homer as he's brought into the modern era, and you've got to talk about Dante and Dante's take on the epic tradition. And importantly, Dante is cribbing from Virgil. Like, he's unapologetic about it. He literally brings Virgil himself into Dante's Inferno. He parrots beat for beat a lot of the punishments that we see here in the underworld and reframes it under this Christian mindset. He sees Dante as, or he sees Virgil and Virgil's Aeneid as being a good place to sort of bridge the gap between Homeric epic poetry and Christian tradition on the other hand. And there's some really awesome stuff that we're going to talk about there. So do keep this in mind. We will talk about the punishments. We will talk about Virgil's view of the underworld in greater detail once we get to Dante's reinterpretation of it. So, again, much as I am still not 100% on Virgil, much as I still have a lot of frustrations with this text, and I'm still generally very angry about it, there are some redeeming qualities, and it does have some major historical value, some of which is definitely going to be elevated by the time that later writers get a hand, uh, hold of it. I look forward to talking about it with you soon.